This is a Culture Inject production. Okay, we are recording um, on Audacity. Yeah, recording on my end. Everything Audition, looks good. Test, recording on check. Skype. Everything looks good. Okay. Welcome to the Nevers Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the discussion and dissection of every episode of the upcoming HBO series, The Nevers, from writer-director Joss Whedon. Download and stream The Nevers Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, and subscribe. You can find us on the web at hbothenevers.com and on social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at hbothenevers. If you have comments or questions, as well as topic suggestions, email us at theneverspodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Patreon. If you enjoy this content, please consider supporting us on our Patreon account. Benefits include personalized shoutouts on the podcast, access to our VIP Facebook group, the Nevers Podcast swag, entry into giveaways, access to Dollhouse Awaken, our show where we revisit every episode of the Dollhouse and more. Just search the Nevers Podcast Patreon. I'm Heather, and joining me today are Tyg and Gina. Hey, hey. Ahoy. <laughs> so it's it's been a while since we've all, uh, well, we record a lot together, but maybe for our listeners. So why don't we do some catch up? My sister and I are, um, we are writing a pitch to potentially hopefully sell to this production company. I can't say what it is, but it's a very dark real life event. So that's been my headspace for the past few weeks. Whew, a lot of death. That's all I'm going to say. So I'm actually very happy to record this episode since Victorian England is so happy. <laughs> uh, how have you guys been? Um, I, I'm good, I, except for, you know, I had to kill my Nevers podcast last week, and that was a bit of a bummer. Um, but, you know, it was also cathartic, and I'm glad I'm here, so I won't get too bummerific on everybody. Um, and I'm just, you know, just working and doing my other podcast. And like Gina, you know, America's still falling apart. Good times. Of course, England is taking this whole pandemic in its strides. Not at freaking all. <laughs> yeah, so um, I basically haven't left my flat in about two months now, and... um slowly rewatched all of South Park and I'm now after um losing Grant Imahara last week which oh. hit me a lot harder than I thought it would I'm uh, rewatching all of Mythbusters which is just as brilliant as it ever was and he, he was such a great host legend like I didn't realize just how amazing his career was until oh, I yeah. sort of looked into it and it's like he he really lived the geek high life so he's definitely gone off to Valhalla or wherever nerds go after this. Yeah, we lost a few. We lost um, lost Olivia de Havilland um, <sighs> last night. She was 104. We lost John Saxon, who was in Enter the Dragon and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, so, mm. yeah, it's been a little melancholy. I mean, I get yes. that there are more famous people, so you're going to have more famous people in the media that are passing, but it just seems like a lot lately. So yeah, that was that was a nice a nice happy intro there. So, somebody somebody beat Buffy. <laughs> but let's push on to happier things. Oh wait, no we can't. It's the news. As I'm sure many of our listeners will know and our kind of our followers on social media, uh Joss had a panel last night at Comic-Con at home. It was a Zoom with Joss Whedon and many people including 
all of us here at the Never's podcast were waiting to watch that, but it was mysteriously pulled. As of recording, we don't know why, but personally speaking for myself and not as part of you know, the, the greater vehicle that is the Never's podcast, I believe that given our second part of news, the best thing for Joss to do right now is focus on his work, focus on getting the Nevers made, and you know, there's always going to be more Comic-Cons, there's always going to be a new panel, but right now, with coming off a six-month delay, he needs to focus on getting his pre-production work done, because shooting will be resuming soon, and he needs to make up for that big gap. It was revealed a few days ago that The Nevers is set to start shooting again in September, six months after production was halted for the COVID-19 outbreak. So right now, like kind of wrapping up both these news topics together, right now I think all Joss needs to be doing, ignore literally everything else that's happening, focus on getting The Nevers made, and more importantly, in doing it in the safest possible way that he can. Production needs to resume, but it needs to resume in a way that protects the cast as much as possible. And more importantly, protects the crew from any possible kind of infection or outbreak. So, like, while obviously I was very excited, I was, you know, for the panel, hoping to see maybe a few snippets about the Nevers, some interesting kind of lore, that stuff, I would much rather he focused on getting his work done. And you know he can he can tell us what he was going to tell us this year, next year. There's always another panel. There's only one chance to record and nail the perfect first season. Yeah, and um, I- I'm curious if he's really happy with the extra time that he's had. I mean, I'm sure since they were filming, he was beyond prepared. But I wonder how much work he's personally put into the Nevers the last six months. Like, has he taken a look at the scripts again? Has he um, shaped up any dialogue or anything? It's really it's really interesting. Like, if we were ever to interview him, uh, that's what I would ask. Yeah, that's I would a great be very point. interested to hear his answer. Yeah, I don't know how much of a rewriter he is. I don't have a sense of his process, so I, it, it would be interesting um, to to talk to him about you know in the the COVID shutdown. He they've got five episodes shot though, so I don't know how much mm. he can change. Right, so it could be he got to work on season two during his downtime. Right. I was just hoping. I was hoping for a trailer. I was hoping for some sort of look at it. Like same. All right, are we ready for the discussion? Let's do this. All right. We are discussing in this show um, Victorian England and how it relates to um, the Nevers. That's when the show is set. Um, we have varying uh, little bits of information on about how realistic it's going to be tied in with steampunk or not. It, it, it's starting to sound more and more like it's going to be super steampunk. Um, but we kind of wanted to review um, some of the components in, in the era that make up Victorian England and how they may affect the show itself. So, and we also have an interview from Ruth Goodman, who her specialty is Victorian England, and she's going to uh, talk with a lot of authority and a, and a lot of spunk about about uh, Victorian England, because it did span such a long time. Um, Vic- Victoria had the longest reign before Elizabeth, um, 
Elizabeth II, who's who's um, the queen now. And so there was lots of change. And what began at the beginning of Victoriana was probably very different by the end. So going into the queen, she reigned for 64 years. She wasn't supposed to be the queen. She was like fifth in line to the throne, but none of her uncles produced any heirs that could um, take the crown. So uh, she, by default, became queen when she was 18. She is associated with the industrial expansion, um, the the huge expansion of the empire into India and other lands. Um, And she oversaw the rise of the middle class because of industrialization and people moved to the city in droves to make money in factories and stuff like that. She married Prince Albert, who um, was a German from Coburg, Saxony at the time. Um, They had a ton of kids, like all their kids married into other kids in Europe and pretty much every monarchy in Europe was related to Victoria. She was called the grandmother of Europe. Um, Albert died young. They were in love. It was an arranged marriage, but they were in love and she wore black for the rest of her reign because she mourned him so much. The dichotomy of her reign was that she, and this was more probably because she was a woman than it was her actual persona, but the Victorian um, era is known for being very priggish and very moral, uh, morally centered on people's personal behavior and um, uh, social mores. Um, at the same time, you know, and we'll talk about it later, prostitution run rampant, crime ran rampant. There was, you know, filth and crime and and just it's it's such a dichotomy. Um, she was supported charities. She supported public education, uh, hospitals stuff like that. And that was kind of progressive of her. And she was a Whig, which was a, a Democrat at the time, basically. So um, so that's that's kind of how to frame how the monarchy um, affected and may affect how the Nevers runs. Now, I want like a TV show about her. There is a TV show about her. It's actually just called Victoria. It's on its like third season. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's BBC. It's actually a great show and it talks about, um, it talks about, there's also a great movie called Young Victoria with Emily Blunt in it that play, she plays Victoria. And it talks about all these draconian rules she had to put up with so she wouldn't get hurt or die before she inherited the crown. And it, it was called the Kensington rule. She couldn't walk downstairs by herself. Like, wow. Yeah, it was, it, it was nuts. So when she came into power, she, she banished her mother's boyfriend, John Conroy. She banished her mother to a part of the palace where she didn't have to deal with her. Like, she was independent. She was like, I'm the queen now. Cool. Bugger off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's, she's pretty fascinating. Um, she was also five foot nothing. She was tiny. She was a little tiny person. Yeah. And when she was young, her picture, she's very attractive. But once she started having kids, she got rounder and rounder and rounder. But I'm wondering how much of that will be touched on in the show. Because from what we've seen, the majority of the characters do tend to be on the lower end of the social ladder. Like We've got lots of orphans, lots of kind of underworld people. But there is still, there is Lord Masson, who I still yeah. believe is going to be the primary villain. Right, the Pip Torrens. Pip Torrens character. The Pip Torrens mm. character, and I've talked about this before uh, on my show, that he's um, what they call one of the gray men, like an advisor to the queen, one of the guys that goes out there and protects her interests and gets things done. And, you know, I think his role is, if not being the main villain, being 
certainly one of the villains is is going to be to figure out what's going on with these girls that keep causing trouble. And, you know, I, will the queen play a part in it? I doubt it. But but yeah. he'll be the representation of the crown. I have a feeling they, they won't directly sort of cast Victoria or have her in the show, but there will be lots of mentions of kind of the patron and her majesty. Oh. And... Like, Torrens is definitely going to be kind of the fr- the face for the government in the show. And I have a distinct suspicion that Joss may recycle, well, not recycle, but like may utilise a lot of the scrapped plot line that he was going to use in Firefly for mm. the, the Blue Hand crew and all that sort of government oversight and sneaky behind-the-scenes murder people. I have a oh, feeling yeah. we may <laughs> see a few of those plot lines being used in a slightly less just never saw a government's conspiracy theory he didn't like in his shows exactly i mean i love it and absolutely it's the crown royalty monarchies in general are just rife with people currying favor and plotting behind each other's back so it's it it, it's going to be super realistic because Mm. you're all all of these people um that are trying to influence her or find out what's going on are only you know they've got to get it done because they don't want to be out of favor with the crown so i think it'd be cool if victoria was a character maybe in the second season like a really small character you know like uh like judy dench playing elizabeth in uh shakespeare <laughs> love where she just came to a show and fell asleep or whatever <laughs> yes still got an award for it so yeah <laughs> She did. She won an Oscar for eight minutes on screen. I was yep. like, that's when I knew the Oscars were broken. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no disrespect to the dame, but come on. But I, I think it's interesting that she, now, she, she didn't have a lot of power. She was the beginning of the constitutional monarchy where um, most of the power resided in the House of, in Parliament with the House of Lords and, and what, it's by, it's bicameral, right, Tyg? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, so um, um, she influenced people by talking to them, but it has been recorded in her diaries and people that um, do her biographies that she was very interested in charity and improving living conditions for the people that were flocking to London, which is incredibly progressive for the time. Mm. Now, how much of that actually happened, It, like Ruth would point out, it got markedly better as her reign went on, but... Uh, I don't, I'm not sure 19th century England was a nice place to live if you weren't rich. <laughs> and the contemporary issues this is all going to bring up is, is super interesting because we've seen oh, the yeah. second rise of the Gilded Age and we're all chattel working for them. But it's interesting seeing about, um, she saw the over, the oversaw the rise of the middle class. While I do believe we're going to be seeing mostly the lower end of the political spectrum or social spectrum. There is that middle ground where we've got um you know, friend of the podcast, Dennis O'Hare, his role as kind of a, a high powered surgeon, and I'm forgetting the name, but the the other gifted surgeon, uh Momo's character. Oh yeah, yeah. I can't remember his name, but there and there's also there's also Ben Chaplin as the cop, which would put him yes. middle so class. Like high ranking cops, high ranking doctors, I can see them all being kind of on the forefront of the emerging middle class. Right. Yeah, and you know, cops would be brand on. new at this point. Like cops mm. would would like law enforcement from a civil perspective before that were paid for. Like you had to pay people to come investigate stuff. You had to pay people to come put a fire out at your house. 
So the, this whole, you know, the whole safety net, the, the, the beginnings of, um, kind of socialistic, uh, medicine and, and care for people developed out of the, out of Queen Victoria's era. So it's, it's definitely a lot of kind of subjects of reformation and of looking after those less fortunate that are just, you know, ripe for investigation is still very sort of important issues that are still going on now but this is missing the genesis of many of them so it'll be very interesting to see what joss's take on all of that is within the setting of the show speaking of social reform and things of that nature the orphanages being as the primary characters in this show are all within the uh, orphanage run by lavinia bidlow aka our favorite person uh, social reformer, statistician, and founder of modern nursing, Florence Nightingale, found that 24 London hospitals at, during the Victorian era had mortality rates exceeding 90%. Jeez. Just think about that stat for a second. Like, yeah, This reflected the poor sanitary conditions that were called for in that called for reformation in hospital policy. What's more, historian F.B. Smith found that dirt and diseases like typhus consumption and cholera were responsible for the high mortality rates in adults during the Victorian era. This resulted in a significant number of children who had experienced loss of, pa- of parents, placing them in orphanages. It's worth noting, though, that not all orphans were children. Like we, we think of you know the modern orphan of someone with no parents, right. but oftentimes, actually, they would be abandoned either due to lack of money, overcrowding, or any number of societal issues that would lean to the parents just being physically incapable of looking after them. So they would leave them at these orphanages just to kind of survive. Sadly, conditions in many of these orphanages were so bad that children, when given the choice, chose to live on the streets because living conditions on the streets were better than they were in most orphanages. This led to quite a lot of street crime and Oliver Twist. (laughs) I mean, how bad is it if you don't want to, like, a regular meal and food over your head, you'd rather just resort to the streets? Um, that says a lot yeah. to me. Um, I know the, I know these institutions were sometimes religious run or they were privately mm. run. They d- depended on donations. Um, and you can just think about it in, in the lens of now with um, people um, arresting and um, interning immigrants and they are looking for that dollar per head profit so Mm. can you imagine in victorian england with no oversight you're going to try and feed those kids for as little as possible feed and clothe those kids for as little possible and it 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 sounds horrific to me i mean sure they're not they weren't all horrible i'm sure some were at least sort of on the up and up but i mean you didn't have so many things that we take for granted now like um like uh, penicillin or or anesthetics or you know mm. pain relievers, like just from a from a, a being sick point of view, like if you mortality was huge then, right? Like the yeah. average lifespan for a man was thirty eight. Yep, wow. and far lower, far lower for women and kids. And an, another kind of another reason why you would choose the streets over an institution like that. Many um, in many of them, corporal punishment was rife, and we're not talking like. The handed, we're talking canes, slippers, like real weapons that could leave like open sores and cuts 
which due to the incredible dirtiness would get infected, which would mean something as simple as a fever due to lack of treatment because there's no NHS and all that, you know, the things we take for granted now, would mean that, you know, one bad day could result in the death of an orphan. I mean, it's we're going to talk about Charles Dixon, Dickens, but it's worth noting that Jane Eyre also wrote about um, mm. about orphanages. And when she got sent to one, when her wealthy um, aunt couldn't didn't like her um, and sent her to an orphanage, and just the way that she describes it, you know, you know, if the if you make a mistake, they make you stand on a stool all day so people can make fun of you, and you can't eat, and you can't sit down, and you can't sleep, like. They get your hair cut if your hair is offending God, like if somebody catches you without your bonnet. That's the kind of thing that happened. And her best friend, of course, got cholera or consumption and died. Like, and they didn't call a doctor or anything. She just died. Man, I I thought I knew about a lot about Victorian England, but I guess I don't. I was in Oliver in high school. My brother played Oliver. So I always have, you know, please, sir, I want some more. Um, right. And now that makes more sense. But also... There's a film called Victor Frankenstein, and it stars Dana Radcliffe and James McAvoy and Andrew Scott, (sighs) my three loves. And um, one of the things, (laughs) it's actually a really small plot point towards the beginning of the film. This woman, I'm not going to spoil too much, named Lorelai gets her and she goes to a hospital and Igor goes after her and he sees how horrible um, the conditions are. So if you ever want to kind of plunge into Victorian era, I would suggest Victor Frankenstein. I've probably mentioned this film in this podcast before. But I think one problem with the Victorian era is, uh, as Heather said before, and as um, we will cover much later in the interview, it was such a long period of time. There was such huge amounts of change. Um, A lot of... A lot of British people, because we want to kind of put a bit of a glaze on the past, we focus on the later eras when everything was a bit cleaner and there was, you know, Florence Nightingale had done her part and tidied up uh, the hospitals a bit and orphanages and we had proper policemen. The early years were very, almost like an English equivalent of the Wild West. Like, it was very, look after yourself and if you can't, screw you. So I'm, I'm almost hoping that while I would like it to be more focused on the later years so that we can see things like, you know, policemen and all that stuff. I think there's more stories to tell if you focus on the earlier years of the Victorian era, just because it's a bit more wild, so there's more you can do without running into kind of the law or reality. And and, and it's worth questioning um, with the the orphanage and Lavinia and and all the girls, and she's collecting these girls with powers... Mm. uh, and she's, I guess she's described as being a moneyed individual so that she can afford mm. to do this. So it's going to be interesting to see how their living conditions in particular um, contrast, and I would hope they contrast with the Keynesian type, you know, Jane Eyre type orphanages, because she's going to have to be a sympathetic character and she's going to have to care for the girls and they're going to have, like, I would think the orphanage would have to be a place of, uh, at the very minimum of safety and having Maslow's, you know, basic needs met. Do you know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> you know, food, water, shelter, so, yeah. blah, blah, blah. So, um, so yeah, I think she, I think she will be very much an Adele character that she's tough, but caring, um, and probably pretty with, depending on where she falls in, um, Victorian hierarchy, she may be gentried. So she she might have a lot of pull that way. Um, 
I have a feeling she may be kind of low-ranking landed gentry because we know they've got she's got a big stately home because that's where the orphanage is. Right. I wouldn't be surprised if she was like an exiled scion of a, or like the last heir of a grand fortune. And she has enough money right. to look after the orphanage. Her husband died. It's all hers now. You know, she yeah, doesn't have her to. Husband died. She in heavy air. Quotes. Yeah, and she doesn't have it entailed away to some you know male cousin or something. So. I quite like the idea of kind of her being the last scion of this great, like, right. ancestral family line. And she's the ensign, like, but she, she doesn't have any kids because she doesn't care about having a husband. So she's got, like, she's kind of just gathered this army of right. orphans that she raises as her family instead. I, and then I start thinking about, Downton, like, Downton Abbey was a little bit more ahead in the timeline. But, you know, the, the grand houses and kind of the... You know, you're going to have them in their orphan clothes and they won't be horrible, but they're, and she's going to be, you know, sashaying around in like an evening gown every once in a while. And I'm so excited about the costuming. Oh, <laughs> now, now I'm excited about the show all over again. <laughs> so my, I have a question for you guys. Do, how do you think it's going to be with the orphans? Do you think they're all going to be in place or do you think it's going to start out with them? being scattered and she collects them or are we gonna have them all there and get backstory like i'm so curious about how this ensemble is going to come together i think it'll be a mix of the two mm-hmm. there will be a core group of kind of um like penance and um orgy kind of that's the kind of the, the core group the leads whose name i always forget and i have no idea i feel quite bad what's, laura what's donnelly laura amalia true Le- um, I don't know why, I can't remember the name of Amalia, but yeah. But we'll have Amalia, <laughs> Penance, and maybe one or two others. But then people like uh, uh, the, the giant lady and the singer, I think they will join in later on. And we may kind of recruit them over the first two or three episodes. I don't know why, and this is probably not going to happen at all. I would think it would it'd be cool if Amalia wasn't a part of that core group. See, I don't so think she first- is either. I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, so m- maybe like the first episode, it's about her finding out about them and being with them towards the end of the episode. And like she could be the audience's eyes about learning about the orphanage. Could be the opposite, but I think that would be cool since she's a main character. Yeah, I, I, I think I put that out on on uh, Never's Cast that I thought Amalia was either going to get helped out by the orphans, but somehow accidentally fall into them. Um, and it may, that may be totally wrong, but I feel like mm-hmm. she, she's an outsider and I don't know why I feel that way. They've said very little about her in comparison to the other cast members. So, you know. I still have a distinct impression that the inciting incident for whatever the first arc of the Nevers is, is going to be Amalia discovering her powers. Mm. So I wouldn't be surprised if. <laughs> I, mean, either... I love those scenes like, oh crap. <laughs> <laughs> Look what I can do. Yeah. I think there's a lot of potential for that being kind of the first arc. So maybe her either running into some orphans or her being an orphan and a non-orphan running into her, causing her powers to kick off. And that will be the inciting incident, which kicks off the episode. Kind of like, so I've been binging Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I'm trying desperately to catch up before the series finale. And it's it's still so interesting to me that, you know, the, 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 um, the mutants, the, uh, the Inhumans, when their powers come out, sometimes they just, they don't know they have them or, you know, it's a great point of stress where they do discover what they are. And it's, then they're always like, oh, crap. <laughs> How did I do that? So, yeah, <laughs> kind of, kind of waiting for that sort of inhuman kind of thing to, to rise with 
I mean, it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility because, you know, Joss is such a big fan of X-Men and Kitty Pride and stuff like that. And, you know, it, and uh, of course, in the Marvel Universe, the Inhumans. So I feel like their orphanage is definitely going to be a higher end one. Mm-hmm. Because that could do one of two things. That could make the audience be like, wow, they're so privileged that they get to live in such a nice orphanage. But I don't think that's going to be, I don't think the audience is going to feel that way because they have these powers and because they're so ostracized. And maybe they do deserve like a little bit of luck. And that means being in a nicer orphanage. That's what I think. I have a distinct suspicion they will be, they will have it slightly better than other orphans. They still won't have it particularly, like, they won't have it well. They'll. Yeah, right. I, I'm seeing lots of kind of, clean but not very well made smocks that uh like all wearing kind of almost a uniform yeah but not yeah i have the same i don't think it'll be luxurious by any means yeah but i think i also think that in bringing some of the girls on you will see the orphanages that are absolute squalor like you will see the 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 comparison i'm at least hoping so that people get a sense of the reality, what the mainstream reality of orphanages were versus mm. what the girls mm-hmm. hopefully have. I, I can't see it being, I mean, what if it's just turned on its head and Lavinia is completely abusive and controlling their powers for her own game? Yes. I, I mean- was thinking that. Like We keep talking about what, like, what if Pip's the bad guy and what if Dennis is the bad guy? What if freaking Lavinia Bidlow is the bad guy? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Like, what if she's gathering awesome. all these all these touch together so that she can kind of use their powers for nefarious ends? Well, you know, with any Joss property, there's always the gray morality. You know, nobody's mm. ever 100% good except for maybe Tara. <laughs> you know? <Yeah>. Everybody's, <laughs> got, everybody's got their problems. So, I mean, I can't see her, you know, being the wealthy matriarch that's just above it all. She's She's going to have ulterior motives they all always have ulterior motives so right and and olivia williams god bless her is so great at playing that morally gray pit viper do you know what i mean like (laughs) she's just you she could cut you to ribbons with her tongue i love it like my favorite scenes are in dollhouse when she verbally jousts with either topher or mr dominic it's just it's just a school in how to be the coldest biatch <laughs> on earth. <laughs> I need season one to end with the audience realizing and figuring out that, oh, she's in yeah. league with the bad guys. It would, I would love it. Or she's in league with somebody else that's doing the same thing, the bad like. Uh, okay, it would be quite interesting to have kind of league. season one finish with the defeat of, for now, let's just say Pip Torrance. Kind of, we, uh, they smack down the gray man. Everything's good. And then, like you see him, either you see him reporting to a baddie, or you see, you see like through the course of the ep- of the season, you see him reporting to kind of his boss. And then the post-credit scene for season ten oh. is Lavinia talking to the same person, oh, like, "Yeah, don't worry, we got rid of Pip. He's yeah, he's out of it, but the plan is still going ahead perfectly." Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> and, then, and then you know you gotta wonder about you know um, the the pansexual. Hugo Swan, how he fits in, and and it's hard for me to understand still at this point where I think all the, the puzzle pieces fall together. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I love Hugo Swan. 
This episode of the Nevers Podcast is sponsored by Dead Good Teas, aficionados of the sci-fi and horror genre and creators of premium heavyweight t-shirts and hoodies that are built to last. Dead Good Teas ships worldwide, so whether you're braving the Arctic winds of the Yukon or strolling the beaches of beautiful Thailand, Dead Good Teas has you covered. Thank you to Dead Good Teas for supporting quality podcasting. Start shopping today at deadgoodteas.co.uk and don't forget, you can follow them on Online at Dead Good Teas. Uh, the next topic we have is gender politics. So Victorian society was organized hierarchically, both in class and gender. Victorian gender ideology was premised on the doctrine of separate spheres. Ooh. This slated that men and women were different and meant for different things. This is making me sick uh, saying this. Men were physically strong while women were weak. For men, sex was central, and for women, reproduction was central. Men were independent, while women were dependent. This is literally against everything I am. Uh, Gender identity was strictly binary, and homosexuality was absolutely taboo and criminal. I have a lot of thoughts about this. Um, I, I, I feel like, without a doubt, a huge thing about the Nevers is going to be feminism duh and how all of the touched deal with that in their world and how they're heroes in a world that obviously doesn't think of them as anything um and if you think about it like uh women's rights were obviously huge in that time women wanted to vote i'll talk a little bit more about that when i talk about the bbc sherlock episode um but that's that's the thing i'm most excited for is to see how the nevers deal with the men in their life and how society views them, especially because they have superpowers. So it's a perfect like parallel to perfect metaphor. And I feel like Jess is going to nail it. You know, it's, it's going to be interesting because they address um, prostitution because Ella Bell is a, a character who is a prostitute and they have openly said that Hugo Swan is pansexual. So gender politics are going to be a huge play. They haven't, I don't think they've led on to anybody else, but certainly there's going to be more swirl about gender identity in there. Um, at the same time in Victorian England, you know, was so priggish about sexuality, even the prostitution ran rampant. It was absolutely forbidden to be homosexual. And there wasn't even the notion of being transgender or being pansexual or like that's that's liking boys and girls, being bisexual, being ace, however you want to put it. So, you know, I, I it, if I had to take a guess, women were considered asexual, just that men were the only ones that were interested in sex. And if you, you know, with the smell and everything, if I was a woman, I'd be like, don't touch me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point. Yeah, homosexuality in that time is um, insane. Throughout my research of this era, like I think the first like male brothel was in 1889. So there was one, which is crazy to think about because I feel like these people would were putting their lives in danger just to go to a male brothel. Ooh, that's like a TV show in itself. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting because there's all these different like underground clubs or bars that like the 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 homosexual community knew where to go and they would kind of have code names for things right um and then one of my favorite little tidbits is like um if a man wore a green carnation 
that would mean that they're homosexual. And that's, again, it's like a very, like, underground club. But then I still feel like society kind of knew a little bit about it. And we're obviously against it. I mean, Oscar Wilde, that's crazy that <laughs> he was in prison. And um, um, Alan Turing, when was Alan Turing? He was in trouble for That was being, much later. Was it? Yeah, that was um, World War II. Well, it illustrates up until I think very recently it was still super. I mean, super taboo, and and the codified language went on uh, during the AIDS epidemic for sure. Um, went on um, with, among the homosexual community, and you know certainly up to the Stonewall in '69, where you know if if the cops didn't get you, people that were disgusted by your sexual preference would. And so it all had to be on the down low because it wasn't just getting arrested. You could get, you could be murdered for being, you know, not straight, not being cis. Right. So. Which which is crazy to think about. And, and it's yeah. sad how we still haven't made enough leaps forward, honestly, because uh, that was a long time ago. Um, but I feel like Hugo Swan's character is definitely, hopefully going to be our window into that kind of world. And it doesn't even have to be like a huge part of his character, but I would, I would personally love to see him go to, um, you know, uh, uh, a bar, right. A homosexual bar and, and him dealing with that. I would love that. I feel like he's going to be a dandy. So I feel like, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like he's going to be very, very switchy, very like Lorne almost, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And Mm -hmm. he's going to, he's going to give, life to that underground um and i'm sure there's some other characters that will be involved as well but him for sure that you know he's but he's i feel like i know him almost the best i feel like he's going to be really smart and understand the dangers of who he is and understand how to how to walk the line very carefully while still somewhat enjoying his life the the gender politics is probably the thing i'm most excited for i feel like that's probably what everyone's most excited for, I would think, just because I think it's going to be such a feminist show. So, One thing I would say, though, with the character of Hugo, I hope, like, you're saying, picturing him being a bit like Lorne, like, I hope they almost don't go that far. It would be a bit of a shame if the only, if, well, like, the only main sort of non-cis lead was this big swishy stereotype. True, like, I don't true. want them to, like, dial it all up to 11 and have him just be this no, overly flamboyant kind of um, late season Captain Jack-esque character. <laughs> it it right. would just be a little bit like, did you really need to go that far? Like, I, I really hope the fact that he's pansexual isn't the most important part of his character. I hope he has a very strong arc that's to do with with him and with literally right. anything other than his sexuality in the same way i hope that all the characters have arcs that are kind of deeper than just the surface details of who they are but with like it feels like hugo particularly it will be so easy just to have him to be the window into victoriana and how horrible we were to homosexuals back then is that really all we want from that character? Like, I'm, I hope there is an arc that addresses that part of how Victorian England handled everything. But I hope that's very much a sub story to that character, not the primary reason that character exists. Because I think that would just be a little kind of cheap for me. 
No, I can't. I can't see it going that way. Yeah. And you're right. The pansexual, the pansexual belies that he, you know, he likes boys, but he also likes girls, and he also likes, you know, the, the pan, right? Mm-hmm. He likes <laughs> a little bit of everything in between. Um, <laughs> right. And let's face it, it's a house full of girls. There's going to be lesbians. I hope there's got to be lesbians. Yeah, I mean, statistically, there has to be at least probably two. <laughs> just just running the numbers. Well, I, I think the part I. I I'm hoping with the gender roles and the prostitution and, and the, the seedier side of London, if you will, is that they draw the curtain back on kind of the, the, as you put it, uh, Tig, the caricature of what Victorian England was and all of its beauty and grace and all of its horribleness and really kind of try and delve into the day to day that, you know, yes, it was, it was squalid. Yes. Homosexuality was a, homosexuality was a problem. Yes. There were no women's rights, but these, just like most humans do, we adapt, right? And for the people living during that time, you know, it could be worse. So uh, during Victor- the Victorian ages, as most ages, prostitution was a wide-scale problem because where there are mostly men, they're going to, you know, pay for sex with women because that's the only way they can get it. It went against the grain of Victorian society mores at the time, as it does, you know, unless you're talking about ancient Rome, <laughs> it, it, you know, most societies uh, frown on, on um, sex. And I've never understood that. Like men have made society for thousands and thousands of years and they understand what their needs are. And then they outlaw the thing they want most. I've never gotten that. Yeah. I don't, I don't get it. Maybe, maybe Ty can illuminate um, <laughs> when, when I'm done walking through the talking points, but working women, because, you know, women were more in the workplace during the industrial re- uh, uh, revolution were um, considered right to be what was termed as fallen women, which is what they call prostitutes. Factory workers, uh, seamstresses, um, and servants were uh, the most likely to get tossed into prostitution because of their um, their ability to be exploited by male co-workers, by bosses, by lords of the manor. Um, uh, and it just, you know, sometimes women were prostitutes just because they needed extra money, like you know, slave wages were were paid back then, pretty much. And the, slave wages is so ingenuous because slaves don't get paid. Yeah. But but it was very low compensation for a lot of hard work. Sometimes sixteen hours a day, seven days a week. Um, this is this is another thing that came out of Victorian England: labor laws, right? So child labor laws. Um, but you know, you had three basic types of prostitution. You had the streetwalkers, and a lot of these women were either married or uh, also had children and couldn't make ends meet, and so it was a way to get some more money. Um, then there were the soldiers and sailors because England was in a lot of wars, oh, yes. <laughs> right? You know, so how times um, have changed. <laughs> so I mean, it was yeah. So it was kind of, you know, just like being uh, like a truck stop prostitute or someone that works near an army base, right? You follow the encampments because young men, you know, you know, fight and have a lot of regiment in their lives. And, you know, so they got to blow off steam. Um, And then there were brothels and they went anyway. Some were pretty low class, but as a rule, they were middle to higher income places. The women were safe there. Um they could pick and choose their clients though they had bosses and they had to pay like room and board and a percentage to the house. But, uh, but um, I think that that's where Ella, uh, Ella Bell's uh, character is going to be based in a brothel. I can't remember her character's name, but 
but she i think they even come out and say she's in a brothel mm, brothel i believe so uh, but it, it will be it you know some women just decided to go into prostitution they, they weren't disgraced they were just like i'd rather do this than go polish you know bullet canisters for 16 hours a day or you know so British law tended to be very pragmatic. It got more and more strict as the Victorian era went on. But mostly they prosecuted prostitutes for health, public health problems like spreading disease or, you know, stuff like that. You 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 didn't get arrested nine times out of ten for just being a prostitute. Like you were suspected of contaminating a group of men or whatever. So... But yeah, back to my original question, Ty. Why do you think men outlaw the thing they want the most? <laughs> what is the deal with that? Why do they? Why does society frown on that? Because it makes it more fun. I'm. I'm. This is a theory I've had for a long time. I am a hundred percent sure. Why do you think? I mean, even today, to this very day, happens once every few months in America. There'll be some like a pastor or a um like a high-ranking government official that's vitriolic in their campaigning against homosexuality. Oh no, slept with a rent boy. It always ha- it happens so often that it's become a joke. And it's because these high these people, they can have anything. So they want the thing that they can't have. And they want to make the thing that they want something they can't have because it adds that kind of illicit air. It makes it more fun. And I honestly, I think that that has, you know, this is just a, a fundamental wiring in human consciousness, not not just men. This is everyone thinks the same way in when we're boiled down to the sort of the core of who we are. You want kind of that, that rush, like we're talking about horror films or um, fair rides. Like you want that little touch of danger that just adds a little seasoning to your activity. So, you know, if your seasoning is horror, you you don't go out and get, you don't put yourself in real danger. You watch a horror film just to get that little endorphin rush. If you want, you know, something a little, a little more X-rated, a little more adult, you, you know, you sneak in, in the back door physically and literally. (laughs) It just, people in power want to add a little kind of spice to their nighttime (laughs) dalliances. but it's so depressing to me that this whole system of labeling women as angels or whores or making all these laws is based on thrill issues. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> people are fundamentally stupid. We have, we have, we have to. Like, if people were just more willing to embrace who they are, life would be a lot safer and happier for everyone. But people in power tend to be incredibly repressed because that's how they get into power. It's all, it's all religion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I think part of it's religion. I also, um, my theory on it, and you may be right, I'm not a dude, um, but I also think that men strive, and this is pretty relevant right about now, to to legislate and write and create things that are better than themselves. Oh. So the creation of anti-prostitution laws is by men that believe good men should be faithful, Right. And should not want these kind of dalliances, even though realistically, it's impossible to legislate that away. You will never legislate that away. It's the oldest, you know, it's the oldest job in the world, as they say. It's the oldest profession in the world. So whether it be by religious or moral or, you know, both, I think society painted itself into a corner with the notion of monogamy, right? Indeed. And so, 
And so now that these, these men that have created these monogamous systems, which were much more advantageous in their workings earlier in society, now have to uphold them by, uh, by uh, pushing the notion that, you know, no one cheats and, you know, prostitution because that's how victorian london treated it like it kind of was over in the corner and it didn't exist and if nobody said anything we weren't going to acknowledge it right yeah it seems like as a general rule the victorian era was not the best time to be a sex worker one of the main reasons why this was so was a near mythical figure jack the ripper bum 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 thank you i added an extra song there (laughs) jack the ripper was an unidentified to this day still serial killer active in the largely impoverished area of whitechapel in 1818 attacks ascribed to jack the ripper typically involved female sex workers who lived or worked in the slums in the east end of london and whose throats were cut prior to abdominal mutilation Yeesh. The removal of internal organs from at least three of the victims led to proposals that the killer may have had some anatomical or surgical knowledge. While there are many theories as to who Jack the Ripper really was, there are a few suspects that legitimately have cases against them. Many of these suspects were at one point suspected by the police, but were never charged with the murders. Others have been speculated on in hindsight and have some historical evidence for their involvement that was uncovered after the fact. Most of these names are George Chapman, James Maybrick, Thomas Neil Cream, and Thomas Haynes Cutbrush. Were These are kind of the top figures, but the simple fact is, to this day, we have no idea. What kind of really stand out for me is why do you think after all this time there were a lot of killing there's a lot of killers going around in victorian era why do you think jack the ripper is the one that we particularly keep coming back to what is the obsession do you think it ties in to humanity's men's needs to repress female sexuality and the fact that he was mostly attacking sex workers and prostitutes do you think that's why he still has this allure or do you think it's just you know, much like the Mona Lisa? Do you think it's the mystery that surrounds him that makes him, if it even was a him, so appealing? So I've said this a million times. My sister and I have written a Vincent Van Gogh biopic. And in it, um, Vincent hallucinates that he's Jack the Ripper, except he imagines that he's also... So Jack the Ripper as Vincent is also killing himself. So like Vincent's his worst enemy. Anyway, uh. when that was going on... Um, Paul Gauguin and Vincent were living in a house together and they would read the newspaper and r- literally talk about Jack the Ripper. Um, but there's <laughs> there's a crazy theory that Vincent Van Gogh was Jack the Ripper, which is kind of crazy. And I'm not going to get into it too much. Just like Google it because there's this whole website about it. <laughs> but like the dates eerily match up. When Van Gogh shot himself, there was only one more Jack the Ripper letter and that one appears to be like fake. So literally when Van Gogh died, there was no more uh, Jack the Ripper anything, really. And Van Gogh was obsessed with prostitutes. He would he like fell in love with one. Um, in yep. my sister and I's uh, biopic, Rachel is a prostitute. She's one of the main characters. Um, he's the one, or when Van Gogh cut his ear off, he ran to a brothel and gave Rachel his ear. And I also think it's weird because... It's a hell of a gift. Right? <laughs> 
Um, I also think it's weird because Jack the Ripper obviously also cut off like a uh, victim's ear. Kind of weird. Um, and a lot of Vincent's artwork has like um, a Reaper figure. So, I you know I think um, I think the big thing um, about the Ripper uh, killings was the the notoriety of how it was executed. Um, I think, um, sure, there was plenty of murder and all sorts of stuff in Victorian England, but you didn't see a lot of disemboweling with surgical tools. And I think that caught the, the, the imagination of the press, which pushed it much, much harder. Um, now, Ruth will say that the Ripper is a much bitter, bigger deal now than he was at the time, but... but to, to that point, he was still like super notable enough to where there was, I believe, a surgeon in the royal household that was suspected. Mm. Um, so, it, it, yeah, and it does bring up um, whether the Ripper makes an, a, a, a main appearance in this show or he's just a topic of conversation. I would imagine that he has to come up at some point. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, it very much discusses... Um, um, Men, some men's um, disgruntledness with with women, uh, women in the sex trade, women in general. I don't know what the Ripper's motivation, Jack the Ripper's motivation was for disemboweling women, but it's certainly, you know, it certainly, you could get cadavers pretty easily in Victorian England. It certainly wasn't because he wanted to s- study. Hmm. There are easier <laughs> ways to study anat- um, anatomy. Yeah, well, I I do have a distinct suspicion that I mean, because there's no way they can cover the era without touching on the Penny Dreadfuls, and yeah. I think it was mentioned before in a much earlier episode. I think it was in one of the letters that a fun way twist on it would actually be not to have the Penny Dreadfuls come in, but to have the Nevers themselves inspire the Penny Dreadfuls. Oh yeah, so that, I wouldn't be surprised I, I... if we saw a. Not we didn't we didn't actually see Jack the Ripper, but we saw someone, possibly Edmund Haig, mm, right. like taking body parts from mm. streetwalkers for a particular reason that we, that we will be explained in the show, and then that activity inspires Jack the Ripper. Right, that's cool. I mm. I also had a thought while we were talking that you mentioned that uh, Moma's character is also a surgeon. And, and he's a man of color. What if he gets blamed for it? Like, Ooh. I don't think he's a surgeon. I think he's a. I think he's a doctor, but he's not just a, a doctor. Okay. Yeah, yeah I don't. I, I. I. think this. The Ripper, as Joss tends to structure things, will it not. It will be background and ancillary, mm. maybe background noise, just like he treated Dr- Dracula. Like Dracula <laughs> came in to Buffy one show, you know ponied around with Buffy and she got wise to him and then he took off. And while I don't think this, this show will have the kind of levity Buffy had with the humor, I think quips in Victorian England are not going to work as well. But, but I do hope that the Jack the Ripper thing isn't a a huge, like you said, you don't want Hugo to be a caricature of a gay man or Mm. whatever. I don't want Jack the Ripper to dominate the because we've done that. We've been there. No, yeah, I, I, I 100% agree with you. And I, I would really like, this is what I was saying about it possibly being uh, Edwin Haig that kind of inspires the Ripper. I would like them to reference him, but not mention him. Kind of as a bit of an Easter egg, mm-hmm. be like, oh yeah, sorry, I had to gather some parts from <laughs> Streetwalkers. And kind of just let you kind of, <laughs> let, let it kind of brew in your mind. Like, 
oh, right. he's meant to be the... Ins- oh, I get it now. Everything makes sense. I, Rather than just hitting over the head. This is Jack. He's, he's going to be so deliciously evil, I have a feeling. Oh, he's yeah. just going to eat the whole scenery with his Dennis O'Hare way, and I can't wait. Like, I am here for Dennis O'Hare just being obsequiously evil, <laughs> but super intelligent. Like, oh. Like his character in True say, Blood. Oh! <laughs> his character in True Blood was so. Br- I, I just want to see that character lifted and just dropped straight into the nevers. It was perfect. And I've already kind of right. said, just because I love him so much and I want him to stick around, I would love if he started evil at first. And then as the season went on, he kind of starts helping um, the touch somehow. And then, then in season two, he's a good guy, kind of. I, I would love that. Kind of like Spike. Well, that's that's going to happen at some point because it always happens. Like, there's always the redemption arc, whether it will be him or somebody else. It's going to be super interesting. And it would be, be quite good maybe not to give him the full redemption arc because it's just more, I think it'll be more fun if he's evil. But just have him kind of always stay on the cusp. He never mm-hmm. quite over, he never quite steps over the line and becomes enough of a threat they have to deal with him. But he's always just a bit, a bit on the wrong end of the scale, but not far enough that it becomes an issue. Never, never trustworthy, n- never outright dangerous, but never a good guy. Do you like what you hear on the Nevers podcast? Care to share your opinion? If you do, then consider leaving a review for the show. Your review helps us to reach new listeners and let us know how we're doing. Go on, it only takes a minute. Freak shows. <laughs> what is a freak show? A display of people or animals with unusual or grotesque physical features, as at a circus or a carnival sideshow. An unusual or grotesque event viewed for pleasure, especially when in bad taste. So attitudes towards gender, race, disability, and empire were often found in freak shows in Victorian England. And the physical display of people with deformities has a history going back as far as the medieval and early modern periods. Those who look different, birth defects, for example, were considered monstrous. Disabled people would often be used as entertainment, the court jester, for example. And in the 1840s, the word freak, short for freak of nature, came into usage. And from then on, these displays or performances were openly discussed and advertised as freak shows. Ooh, that's messed up. Uh, These shows were very popular because they were traveling shows. (laughs) They attracted thousands of people each year. Uh, This was helped by a low entry fee. These shows were also accessible as they appealed to every class and to children and adults alike. And my last point is human disability as a form of entertainment became so popular (laughs) during the Victorian era that permanent venues were constructed. London had the Egyptian Hall and in New York, there is P.T. Barnum's American Museum, who the 2017 film The Greatest Showman, starring Hugh Jackman, was based on. Oh, that's so sad. Um, it's it's interesting. Being a twin, I've always been fascinated with like sideshows and freak shows. Um, I guess I always wanted to create an album called Sideshow, and it's all about being twins and how the view or the world views twins. And I don't know. So I've always been really fascinated with that. And um but it's so sad. It's so sad hearing about it now. And I kind of wish, maybe this is a season two thing, but I kind of wish there was a disabled character so we could see Victorian England through their lens. Because I think that's really sad, but it could be a really powerful statement. And something interesting, too, about freak shows is that um, disabled people, 
didn't mind being in them no, because yeah. to them it was like job security, which is really sad. <laughs> it's so sad. I mean, I guess it's better to perform than be out on the street, but it's still really sad. Um, and yeah, and Victor Frankenstein, again, I'm sorry, I talk about this film a lot, but uh, the main character is Igor, uh, played by Daniel Radcliffe, and he has a hunchback, and he's a part of the circus, so if you kind of want to get a little bit into that world, recommend that film. Uh, I, I have what, what may potentially be considered a hot take here. So yeah, obviously I'm not going to, I'm not condoning Ooh. freak shows, let me just get it right away before, before I get destroyed. <laughs> freak shows are bad. Just, yeah, I don't think it's a statement I particularly need to go into detail with, but yeah, we probably shouldn't have done that, and it was a very bad idea. Is reality TV really that no. different, though? No, no. I mean, honestly. I was going to say the same thing. Is I was there... going to say the same thing. <sighs> yeah, like, modern day reality TV is basically just freak shows with a bit of a lens over them. Absolutely. Top. It's more focused on human behavior than human disability, but it's it's still exploiting yeah. the worst part of our or most unfortunate part of our culture right it's just an excuse for people safe in their homes to laugh at people who maybe are in some cases less fortunate in some cases entirely too fortunate right compared to them like while there are obvious differences at a, at a kind of deep structural level there is almost no difference between a victorian freak show and you know a modern day reality tv show so we yeah we can't really hold ourselves above them because quite frankly i think there there are many networks and tv shows where if they could get away with you know doing stuff like that they absolutely still would i mean you, you just need to watch any of those got talent shows uh, and, you know, I'm just there, like, yeah yeah, yeah hand, absolutely. hand you know um yeah like just uh get on the record I, I absolutely voraciously devour Britain's Got Talent, America's Got Talent, all of them. I love them. So, you know, I'm, I can't really, you know, claim to be better. But a lot of those shows, they're dangerously close. Oh, yeah. And there's these people that really should not be on stage performing for a crowd that are allowed to perform on stage for a crowd so that we can laugh at them. I have a friend who is an amazing singer. She is brilliant. She went on X Factor and which is a English right. in America now. And what what people don't see is before they ever step on front of that stage in front of the judges, there's all they've already been judged. There's about 10, 12 different rooms full of just like mid-level employees. You go in, you do your act for them, and then they say whether or not you're good enough to be on TV. Or bad enough to yep. be on TV. All those, all those times where you're watching one of those shows and someone comes on and like tries to eat 50 mints in 10 seconds. Or like does some act that's just so terrible. The only possible reaction is to laugh and say, what an idiot. You have to remember that has been vetted by a judge before anyone else saw it. And they were like, yes, we want that on TV. And I, I can't believe that they're doing that because they think it's a good act. They're doing it because they know it's a cheap laugh. Right, right. Well, and they had that on American Idol in particular. I remember I stopped watching the cringe parts of that when I was into American Idol. I, I 
quit watching the cringe parts of So You Think You Can Dance when yeah. you would get, they would send people <sighs> yeah. in because I love dance. I love figure skating and I love dance. It's really beautiful art forms, but having them exploit people who had obviously mentally handicapped and had no business being there with these delusions of grandeur was too much for me. But on American Idol, there was a particular young man. He was Asian and his name was like uh, William Yang or something like that. And he went in and he sang She Bangs by mm-hmm, Enrique mm-hmm. Iglesias or somebody like that. And it was yeah. it was abjectly horrible. He was clearly, clearly mentally and physically disabled. And it was just so tone deaf. And it would never fly now. This was like 10 years ago. But, you know, and, and this poor guy, right. oh, he was, yeah. he was no. wildly popular for, for being ridiculous. Um, and I use that as, as a term, not kind of a label for him. Yeah. Um, and he tried to capitalize on that fame and, and it was really the saddest thing I ever saw. Right. He would go to cons and stuff like that. And I mean, good for him or his parents, uh, but still like that is, you're right. Ty modern day freak show. When you put, you take someone like Susan uh, Boyer or whatever her name was, who clearly also clearly wasn't all there, and she had this voice as an angel. But then, of course, the the tabloids exploited the fact that you know she had all these problems, and you know she wasn't equipped to deal with fame like that. People that are all there are not uh, equipped to deal with fame a lot of the time. So, I mean, I also think that Odian Odian Purball is going to be the freak. He, I'm, I, I believe so, that yeah. he is he is going to be not in a freak show, maybe taken from a freak show to enforce whoever's agenda. Uh, but all signs mm. point to him even being, and we all know Martin Ford is huge. He is a big dude. And, and word has it that he's going to be made to look even bigger and more exaggerated. So, I mean, I cannot imagine what kind of character he's going to play or what kind of understanding he's going to have of who he is and where he came from. But I'm so fascinated by him. Like I have, a, I have a, a feeling that he may well end up being one of those characters that doesn't get center stage, but will, will crop up quite often in those kind of favorite character lists. Like he's going to have a very interesting story. Cause I think there's just, there's a lot you can do with that. I like maybe he was born in a freak show and escaped when he realized he was strong enough to support himself outside of that, um, industry or something, right. or he was rescued by someone like there is, there's a lot you know, of story rescued by there. somebody with nefarious intentions, but treated kindly so that oh. he's loyal to them. Yeah. This is really cool that we're delving into these topics because it feels like the Nevers is like commenting right. on every single one, which is awesome. Like they, it feels like they have all of Victorian England like <laughs> in one show with different characters, which is really well. Impressive. And obviously, we're building a lot of bridges we don't know are there yet. But I mean, I feel like I mean, I felt like these were the most obvious places we were going to see the reflection of Victorian England and. Coming up next, we're going to be talking to Ruth Goodman, and she's going to really illuminate from a historian's point of view how um, how Victorian England was and kind of what the mythos is versus the reality. And she was amazing. Like, you thought you were going to get a school mom, glasses, monotone. She was so animated, so wonderful, so intelligent, and it was a great interview. So enjoy part one of the interview with historian Ruth Goodman and keep a lookout for the full interview, which will be its own episode. We at the Nevers podcast would like to apologize for the sound quality with the following interview. A poor internet connection caused some glitching throughout. We thank you for your understanding. 
everybody. This is uh, Heather from uh, the Nevers Podcast, and we are here with Ruth Goodman, a freelance historian of the social and domestic life of Britain. Hi, Ruth. Hello. She works with museums, theater, television, and educational establishments to consult on the accuracy of their um, their storytelling, and uh, she has been a consultant to the Victorian Albert Museum and the film Shakespeare in Love. She is a member of the Tudor Group, a reenactment organization for the Tudor period. And her new book, The Domestic Revolution, How the Introduction of Coal into Our Homes Changed Everything, is coming out in October in the United States. You can find Ruth at ruthgoodman.me.uk. Thank you so much for being here, Ruth. It's it's a real, it's, it's really great to have you with us on the show. Obviously, being as it's Victorian-based, we really wanted to get someone knowledgeable in that era on so we could pick your brains a bit about some of the grounding that we may be seeing when The Nevers finally airs. Well, thank you very much for asking me. It was really good of you. Very exciting. Uh, yes, we, we. so we've seen pictures from the outtakes of the set, and it looks like they are working really hard to be dead accurate, or as accurate as they can be for something you're recreating. So we really wanted to get your perspective on how actual history would inform what was going on with the show. That actually reminds me of a quick question I had. In a previous interview, one of the an actor playing a scientist on the show mentioned that he had a big lab with an elevator in it. I could remember, were elevators period appropriate or are they kind of making him seem more advanced than the era? Exactly period is it? I mean, which date exactly? Yeah, the Victorian period was like a big span. So that's something... That's the problem. We're not, we're not entirely sure. He's been quite cagey about the details. It seemed quite early on in the era but then we've seen like steam-powered cars and elevators so we have a distinct suspicion he's kind of making it his own part of the victorian era a part that may not factually have existed no an awful lot of people when they think victorian they really mean the very 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 end bit um Hmm. you know and quite often lots of things that people imagine to be victorian are actually early 20th century right I mean, I think there were a few turning up towards the end of Victoria's reign, but it's not common until the 20th century. That's what I figured. It's good to get a historical view. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Like right before World War World War One, you would see stuff like that. So, so for our listeners who may not know Ruth, what what is a um, a historian, and how did you become one? <laughs> Um, by accident. I became a historian <laughs> by accident, entirely by accident. Um, it sort of grew out of a hobby, actually. Um, initially, my husband's hobby. Um, but it just gripped me, the, 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 the business of being alive in the past, about the, the very basic nitty-gritty systems, how you coped, what it, you know, what you thought about things, just the ordinariness of life. And initially, I found great difficulty in finding out about that from books. Uh, it wasn't a popular subject. And the more ordinary you went, the less there seemed to be written about it. The more female you went, the less there seemed to be written yeah. about it. And when you put the two together, the practical business of living at home, doing the ordinary things, it, it was almost invisible in the historical record that, as far as I could find. So it became a bit of a mission, really, to find out answers to very, very simple, very basic questions such as how do you cope with 
cleaning yourself after you've been to the loo. You know, I mean, really <laughs> basic, simple, physical stuff. How, how do you do that? <laughs> and, and, you know, that drew me more and more. I and mean, the history of washing up, fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And, you know, I haven't found anybody else who's interested in it. And yet it's something that's part of everybody's life. Everybody at some point has to wash up, no matter who they are, where they are. And, and it turns out that there's a really quite complicated history to that it changes time and time again as various different situations and technologies change. You know, there's way more to it than you might imagine. And that sort of thing just drew me in, drew me in and drew me in. So it, it's sort of been a, a long process um, and one driven entirely by curiosity. I think that's what we want to kind of get to, too, the everyday life. The show is not about royalty. The show is not about the aristocrats. The show is centered around orphans in an orphanage, if you will, and the underclass and and crime, you know, seedy people. And so, so we're definitely more interested in how their lives would be in whatever era this is, this is supposed to be. So Victorian times, whether rightly or not, were noted because of Charles Dickens for um, the debtors' prisons, the orphanages, the workhouses. How accurate was Dickens' portrayal? Is- well, Dickens is pretty good. Dickens okay. really is pretty good. I mean, he was there, for goodness right. sake. And his own childhood was full of poverty and fear and difficulty. So, you know, he had a very first-hand approach to those sorts of issues. As we all know, Dickens had to go out to work at 12, you know, 12 years old in a, in a, in a factory doing something really very menial. And that stayed with him all his life. He found it a very traumatic experience and it stayed with him. And in one way or another, he continued writing about that child in a difficult situation over and over again. So I would say Dickens has a real authenticity to it um, that, that later writers, you know, can't have because they weren't there. Right. So how were, in particular, how were orphanages maintained? Who Was it the church that took care of them? Were, was it private people that started them up like businesses? Like, I have no idea on what what entailed. Initially, it was very ad hoc. Um, and there weren't very many. Um, so, you know, way more children in need of care than there were places to care for them. And... It was sort of inherited from older systems. So it was it was very patchy. You know, some places had reasonable provision. Other places had nothing at all. Um, and, and that's why the new poor law was originally sort of brought in to try and sort of offer some sort of more uniform system across the country. And you get the workhouses. But I mean, it's 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 about staying alive there's no finesse to it at all when that sort of system first comes in at the beginning of victoria's reign the whole country was actually struggling on feeding itself um it's the same time as the irish potato famine and Um. you know i mean the things that happened in ireland are horrifying but it has to be said there wasn't actually very much spare food in britain either um you know even though we probably if we'd had the political will and i'm I'm embarrassed and horrified to say that the political was completely lacking. I don't think we would have been able to to solve it, you know, to to feed everybody. It was a really, really hungry time. People all over the place, right across Europe, were dying of starvation. And that included England. People were dying in ditches. So 
that first provision that we sort of see at the beginning of the Victorian era is about trying to have enough to stay alive. There's no frills. There's no, like, whether you're an orphan in an orphanage means you've got both parents lost or whether your parents have abandoned you or whether they've handed you over in a desperate hope that somebody will give you a meal because they certainly can't. It, you know, it's very hard for us to understand the level of desperation by the end of the Victorian period, things had changed. There was, because of globalisation and the bringing in of food from America particularly, we were actually much better fed. And it's only the poor who were really, those, those whose families <laughs> <Typical>. disintegrated. <laughs> You know, well, do you know what I mean? The, the difference between sure. the sort of the poor working family the, the, where, the, where there was no food and it was just at the beginning of the era and the end of the era where if you had work, you could eat. Yeah. And, and the differences in those two situations are quite big. But nonetheless, orphanages in all their types throughout the Victorian period are really mostly concerned with getting food in children's bellies. Um, so you, you mentioned, you covered the part where not all orphans you know, were orphans and orphanages. It was just children that were, could be orphans, but also couldn't be cared of or given by, given up by their parents. How would one leave an orphanage? Was it, was it really kind of an adoption thing or more of just a stable to keep you in until you could get age out and work? It basically, it's a stable to keep you in until something else can turn up. Um, so, you know, if you could find any other sort of work, you went to it. If the, you know, the people who were paying for these situations, whether they were doing it through charity or whether they were doing it through the local rates in a in a sort of government organised sort of a way. Nonetheless, you know, they don't want to keep shelling out. They're very, very keen to get children established out, supporting themselves as soon as possible. They're looking for work for these children almost immediately. Right. Basically, by 12, everybody's in full-time work regardless. So our idea of children has to be rethought within that Victorian period. Um, we, we know from you know, books like Oliver Twist and a lot, a lot of Dickens' work, really, there's, yeah, there's kind of street gangs and crime and things. Was there really kind of mob-like structure to the gangs? Were they organised in London or the other major cities? Or was it just... A kind of a giant free-for-all of people taking what they could and killing what they couldn't. I, I think your giant free-for-all is probably closer to the truth. I think <laughs> the, the, the idea of organised crime has always been very attractive to journalists and anybody else who writes stories. Um, and it's the same today, isn't it? People love to talk about organised crime, mafias. There's a certain glamour to it. And there has been since people first started doing any sort of fictionalised crime writing. So you mm. can see that right back into the 16th century when we start getting the first sort of publications in London about organised crime gangs. Um, the Tierra Two, uh, the Damned Crew. They're all 16th century organised crime, supposedly. Um, and, you know, there's already from that 16th century a supposed hierarchy of different jobs within the organized crime world and whether that has ever been really true is <laughs> something you probably have to take up with with somebody who did criminal psychology or something i think bits of it shade towards that sometimes my own feeling is it's mostly fiction um that that crime is mostly unorganized um and desperate quite often quite desperate how was crime generally identified? Like, was there a lot of police presence? Was it left to sort of citizens' arrests? And w what was the prosecution structure like? 
The Victorian era is the moment when we invent policing in a formalised way. Interesting. Um, before the Victorian era, the only policing was done basically by volunteer. Yeah, exactly. It does need the air quotes around it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's sort of like a sort of volunteer thing. And and interestingly, um, the American sheriff system is uh, the, the old sort of Wild West sheriff and the posse is actually closer to what was going on than anything else. It, it's just that whilst we managed to get some form of modern formal policing started here a bit earlier, it took a little bit longer in the Wild West. You know, mm. people were establishing from scratch. So they used the older posse system um, for longer. But that had been what we did here. We would um, uh, elect or recruit a constable out of the parish. The parish would choose a constable, and sometimes it went in a rotation between different blokes. In the you know, somebody who was vaguely suitable would get sort of appointed as the parish constable. And if there was a crime, he was supposed to raise the hue and cry, which basically meant he stood out in the street and shouted for all his neighbours to come and help him. Um, and for quite a long time, um, there was actually laws that said you had to keep a cudgel just inside the door, like a big stick. And if the constable raised the hue and cry, the adult men in the family were supposed to pick up the big stick and run out and go and give him a hand. Um, well, you know, it sort of works in a village-ish. Yeah, I mean... Not so great in a city. Yeah. <laughs> and And... So, so eventually, you know, other things had to be organised. And the Bow Street Runners are the very beginning of modern policing the world over. But initially it starts out as sort of informers and um, people who are paid by results for their policing. And it gradually turns into something a bit more regulated. Um, and we see this move from the, the sort of hue and cry and blokes with sticks through to a modern police force happening during the Victorian era. So it's very, very dependent. When are you talking about as to which stage along that journey they've got to? Well, clearly in America, it's just blokes with sticks. Still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not much has changed. In sort if of anybody's been watching the TV, it's just blokes with really big sticks. So. <laughs> <laughs> and serious stick envy. Um, it, it seems, looking at the character profiles, there is talk of actual police officers and like detectives and things. So I'm assuming, it, just judging from that and from your descriptions, I'm guessing we're talking toward the later part of the era. Sadly, as much as I love to hear the phrase hue and cry, I don't think we will. There will be no cudgels hung off doors. Or, well, there probably will, but not officially. They won't be law-abiding cudgels. <laughs> They'll be just, you know, say no more cudgels. But if you were apprehended by one of these posses and they didn't just hit you with the cudgel and then leave, what sort of prosecution and penalty were there? If you were accused of, break, of breaking the law and you it was you know dead to rights, they had you. Yeah. Would they throw you in a the, in the poorhouse or what would the, what would the, the uh, penalty There were lockups be? and jails uh, established... Um, and people were put in them, then taken to the courts, go through a, a legal process, which is, you know, I mean, that's what our modern legal processes are all based on. So they're relatively familiar. Um, the big divide is when um, we change from being hanged for everything 
into into starting to use prisons for punishment much more. And then there's this great big building of prisons right across Britain, certainly. Um, and that this system also rolls out then across globally as a, a different way of dealing with criminals. So again, the early part uh, of Victoria's reign, you're still seeing quite a lot of offences having the penalty, the death penalty. Um, and but the number of offences for which you can be hung drops and drops and drops. Um, and prison sentences take over. Um, we also have a period in which they try the silent system. Um, in which people are kept permanently in um, solitary confinement um, and silence as well, no speaking. And you could be punished for any speech of any sort. Um, and you might go years, therefore, without hearing a human voice and not being allowed oh, to voice awful. yourself. Um, so much so that the chapels were actually built so that when prisoners went to chapel, they all sat in a separate wooden cubicle so that they couldn't see each other, all they could see would be the the priest or vicar wow. or whoever was officiating. Mm. Um, and um, exercise would be in a, in a yard, and they made wear a special hat so that they couldn't make eye contact with anybody, so that you could only see your, at your feet. Um, of course, an awful lot of people went mad. Sure. <laughs> you know, surprise, surprise. I'm going mad hearing mm. about it. Yeah. Mm. So eventually it was sort of softened off and gradually a small amount of human contact was allowed in the system. But it was quite a long period in which in that was, you know, the punishment was this silent system. Um, So, again, we're seeing a real change. You know, the the Victorian period is full of change. Every period of history is full of change. Sometimes people say to me, oh, it all changes so much faster these days. That is the most utter bunkum. (laughs) Utter <laughs> bunker. Everything has always changed really fast and really <laughs> often. You know, I mean, anything you look at in the past, it's change, 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 change. It's the only constant thing is history: permanent, continuous change. Um, so, if we're thinking at the end of Victoria's reign, we're looking at a, a position where, yes prisons are well and truly up and running. So again, it's going to be very familiar to a, to a, a modern viewer, really. Um, the brick built cells, you know, people locked up for hours a day. That is going to be something that was already going on by the late Victorian period. So um, in many ways, that whole criminal justice system is quite easy to get your head around because it's not so very different. But it had only just arrived at that. It had only just got there. It does seem like that was, as you know, time is always changing. That was very much a period of upheaval in the kind of the uh, administering of the law. A lot of these characters do seem to be on the slightly sketchy side. (laughs) So I'm guessing there's going to be quite a focus on crime and punishment. It'll be interesting to see. But there's an actual detective in it. There's an actual detective with a role, Mm. uh, Ben... Mm. uh, Chaplin. Um, so that pushes the theory it's later from what Ruth is saying. It's a late it's later in the era. Bit of a a bit of a left turn at this point. So we've we've covered sort of the law and crime and punishments. How was the news disseminated in Victorian England? Were there such things as kind of newspapers that were given to shown about? Yeah, newspapers have been going for ages by then. They had a long history already, um, and that's partly due to the technology of papermaking, changes in the technology of printing, 
and a change in tax regime. And all three things make it a lot cheaper. So early on in the Victorian period, there is a paper tax. So all paper you pay tax on, whether it's newspaper or wallpaper. And that, of course, <laughs> obviously pushes the price of newspapers up. And um, there is a big campaign to get rid of it because it was, you know, considered to be a tax on reading, a tax on learning. So there was a big campaign to get rid of paper tax. Um, there was also, as I say, a huge change in printing technology when the old lever presses got replaced by roller presses. And that, of course, cut costs enormously and speeded up the number of copies that could be produced. So that makes a big difference. And also papermaking technology itself changes dramatically within the period. So you've got a sort of at the beginning of the Victorian era. Yes, there are a number of newspapers. They have quite a small circulation. They're relatively expensive. Um, it means they're a middle class sort of a thing. But more people read them because there was a there was a, a, a tradition of passing them on. So you would purchase a paper and then you would send it in the post to your mate who would read it, send it in the post to his mate or hand it round at a coffee shop. The early newspapers went through about six people's hands um, within the sort of first week of their publication. So even though the numbers of people buying it were small, nonetheless, quite a lot of people read it. But as that price goes down, they start to become available to much wider groups in society. And by the sound of detectives, <laughs> I think we're talking at a point in which the, the penny dreadfuls were out and about, which are the tabloids of the day. And they are sensationalist and, um, you know, they're full of blood and guts. They love crime stories. They like to, um, they're not always terribly truthful. Um, the journalists involved Shocker. were really only interested in, yeah, exactly. The journalists involved <laughs> were really only interested in making some money out of it and pretty much publish anything they could get away with. So, and when you read them to modernize, you know, some of it you think, how on earth? You know, we think of the Victorians as being so prudish. And then you read this stuff and you think, whoa, <laughs> 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 you'd never get that past today. Um, so, they can be quite eye openers, those penny dreadfuls. And there were loads of them. They were very cheap. By that later period, they're everywhere. Excellent. I'm, I'm very much hoping they revisit a few of those stories throughout the course of the season, because some of them are just amazing. We, so we've, we've spoken to the credibility of the reporting of the era a little <laughs> bit there. How free was the press? Like, Were they literally just allowed to print whatever they could get away with? Was there any kind of oversight it's a bit like today, to be honest, in that technically there are some limits, but mostly it's about what you can sell. And if you go too far in some directions, people stop buying. And that really is the only thing that controls the modern press. And it was the only thing really that controlled the Victorian press. Yeah. Well, on w in one way that I think we have definitely got one up on the Victorian era... What was literacy rates? What, what were, proving my point wrong there, what were literacy <laughs> rates like? Going on because this is the era in which compulsory education for all first comes in, in the 1880s. And of course, that's bound to make a big difference. To be fair, many people have been looking for literacy for a long time. And, and literacy rates had been rising as people chose with their own good money to seek out whatever education they could grab their hands on. And um, also, there'd been quite a lot of charity provision was being provided to try and help spread literacy. So even by the 1850s, literacy levels are, are you know, they're doing not bad. They're coming up. 
They're coming up, they're rising. Very, very, very ordinary people. We might even think of them as, you know, real breadline people are seeing the value of education. So when education becomes compulsory, there's no argument. You know, people don't, I mean, there's a few odd voices, but in general, the working classes go, yeah, yeah, we want that. That's, we're, we're happy with that. You know, it might be a bit inconvenient. We might not quite like the way it is, but the general principle of education, we want to buy into that. That's good. So in the 80, from the 1880s onward, all children get some form of basic education. Of course, many of them have finished that provision by the time they're 10, even nine. In, partic- in areas where people needed a lot of child labour, so particularly the countryside, actually, particularly rural regions, um, the local sort of bigwigs would sort of go, yeah, 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 and have systems that meant that the children could get out of school earlier by making the they had to pass a leaving certificate and um, they simply just like made it easier and easier and easier so that younger and younger children could pass it. So although technically you were supposed to stay till 11, an awful lot of children were actually leaving at nine and going into work because the people who set those things needed child workers. And this was this was little boys and little girls. It wasn't just limited to men. Both. No, no, the rule was for both. So we do have, because this, you know, we have an underground element in this show, we do know that there's a prostitute cast in the show. And and I wondered if you could speak a little bit to how um, sex work was regulated and perceived. Was it? Was it legal? Was it uh, illegal, but acknowledged? Was it like, we're just going to look this way? Well, again, it changes (laughs) quite a lot. Uh, Organized, no, not at all. This is the era when the very first regulations about sex start coming in. I mean, obviously, there'd always been the church stuff, sure, but not within the criminal law. Um, so this is the era when we first have an age of consent. So huh. before the Victorian period, there is no such concept at all. And the, the age of consent comes in as a result of some investigative journalists' campaign. Um, he purchased for cash from her mother, a 12-year-old girl. Oh, my God. For sex. Um, and he wrote about it. Um, and he tried to make, you know, he tried to make that as a, as a basic. And he described how this was quite normal in parts of London, um, that, they, that the young girls obviously commanded a higher price because they were virgin. And many people erroneously believed that if you had sex with a virgin, you would be cured of venereal disease. So men who were rattled with syphilis were deliberately looking out for young girls in order to clean themselves. It's utterly uh, foul. And that, although the journalist himself came in for quite a lot of flack and there, and there are elements that make you think to yourself, hmm, he's not entirely, oh, mm, not quite sure about this. Nonetheless, right, 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 like, <laughs> you know, what he made did, you think to do this? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there, there's some elements about it that one isn't quite sure about. But nonetheless, his campaign did eventually lead to um, an age of consent at the beginning gave some protection to the younger girls but there's also other things going on the only other form of control of prostitution was to insist upon it it wasn't to do anything for the girls women it was to protect sailors basically who was suspected of prostitution and you didn't have to have any evidence for this the police could just pick any woman off the street whom they thought might be a prostitute have her forcibly examined 
And if she, yeah, it's exactly. So this could include 12, 13 year old girls dragged in off the street, um, have a forcible internal examination. If the doctor in, uh, thought that they were uh, had had any form of venereal disease, they could be incarcerated for up to six months. Wow. System of medicine and um, physical examinations and cleaning that were supposed to clear the disease. I mean, actually, there was no way of clearing the disease. I mean, sure. Talking, you know, pre pre-antibiotics i was gonna ask this is pre-antibiotics right yeah yeah exactly so and the idea was that it was to try and make ports safe for sailors who obviously would be wanting to have sex and pay for it and of course they should be free to go and do that they were men of course nobody ever suggested looking at the the health of the blokes all they, it was just this law to to take women and to examine them and to incarcerate them if they seemed to be ill um, it's it's one of the sort of big things that spurs on the early women's rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, you know, it's it's like <laughs> it was considered to be so much of an invasion of a woman's bodily privacy. Um, she was in this, you know, younger women were often were described as having been violated by the examination. Um, no recourse whatsoever. It's something that, um, you know, really is at the heart of the early feminist um, movement. And, you know, they eventually managed to get rid of those laws. So prostitution is a really interesting social phenomena. <laughs> and, you know, there's a hell of a lot going on. I mean, I'm really excited they're including such storylines because, you know, we could all do to hear some of this stuff. And, and- you know, you've kind of hit on it already, but I'm curious, and I'm sure it's their classes of prostitutes, because there always are, what life is like for prostitutes in that era. I would assume, with you talking about them being, you know, commandeered off the street if someone thinks they have, you know, the clap, it wasn't very good. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> has there ever been a time in which sex workers have been treated well? No, of course not. And and I and I think that's very, you know, clearly there were many different types of sex work going on in the Victorian period, just as there are now. And some people somehow manage to cope, <laughs> and some have a harder time and don't cope. And you know, it's a huge variety of experience going on during that bacteria. Victorian era. Um, there were some women who were managing to almost sort of you know, high-class courtesan stuff. There was a little bit of that, but there was also an awful lot of squalid unpleasantness. Sure. Um, a lot, you know, prostitution has always been associated with poverty. It's always been associated with cities. Um, at the East End of London, you know, it was it was pretty hard for a young girl, really, to... to... What other work was there for many of them? I mean, you know, domestic service, mm-hmm. in which you're at everybody's beck and call... Paid a pittance, work every hour God sends, and you might also get, pred- you know, uh, um, masters and sons of masters who are quite predatory. You know, <sighs> I'm so glad I don't live then. I'm so glad I live in the modern world. <laughs> so, so you you've segued great to my next question, which is, what were gender roles like there, and the plight of not just prostitutes but working women in the poor class? And were was se- how was differing sexuality acknowledged? Was it considered acceptable, like, or was homosexuality and all that kind of stuff just 
sin taboo completely completely unacceptable utterly totally completely unacceptable um this is also the era in which we get the first sort of real legal framework for persecuting people uh, who's were men i mean um most the laws just never really were willing to accept that women would have sex with women or if they did they would they just pretended it didn't happen but men having sex with men it's this era that it becomes such a well not always it had been against the law since henry viii's time but oh wow generally people didn't get prosecuted for it um generally in that earlier period people no, just, they just couldn't got quite flung out, believe flung it out windows and they plans. just couldn't quite believe it i mean what and they so if you you hear about sodomy in the sort of the 16th 17th century people don't actually necessarily mean man on man sex the word sodomy could also mean bestiality it could mean anal heterosexual sex you know the words were sort of a bit more amorphous and 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 vague (laughs) and because of this vagueness not much went on legally a bit but not much and it's the victorian period that it all sort of tightens up um, and the words get defined much more closely, and there becomes a bit of a moral crusade against homosexuality, sure. particularly. But it's preceded by a moral parade, uh, parade, <laughs> a moral crusade against uh, masturbation. That you know, for most of the Victorian period, that's the real baddie. That's the thing. Really. <laughs> And you find, I mean, you think to yourself, surely modern, you know, you, uh, surely, surely. But it's there, you know, like big articles in the Times newspaper about the awfulness of all the masturbation that's going on in, in public schools. How great was that interview? She is amazing. So good. Okay, our next topic, we covered it slightly in that interview. We're going to dive a bit deeper in this. Dickensian satire. What was it like to live in the London of Charles Dickens? Most famously, he's known for A Christmas Carol, A Tale of Two Cities, of course, Oliver Twist, Great Expectations. I mean, his his list, his plays are, to this day, they are still right in the forefront of public consciousness. Uh, he wrote what for then was considered contemporary Victorian English stories based on his childhood trauma caused by when his father was imprisoned for debt, which was a huge, huge thing at the time. And he was consigned to a workhouse so that he could support his family. He abhorred the treatment of the impoverished and his social commentary, which is enshrined in his novels, is considered extremely accurate and illuminating for the time. And even now in 2020 is still worryingly relevant. His work shone a lot of light on the workhouses and the injustice towards women, the shortcomings of the class system, the unmitigated filth of the Victorian era, both physically and morally, and the evil, of course, of alcoholism. He was a he was not a supporter of temperance, thankfully. He also wrote quite descriptively about food, which is one of the reasons why I like his work so much, because I love food. <laughs> the Victorian period came to a close and many of the ills of the nineteenth century were remedied through education, technology, and social reform. And of course, by the social consciousness raised immensely by the popular works of Charles Dickens. Do you think there's going to be any reference to his... Well, I mean, is it possible to make a show set in Victorian England, like during the height of the Victorian era, in an orphanage and not have at least one? Please, sir, can I have some more? Like, Will there be mention of gruel? Will we see a very kind of Dickensian... Like, will we see a kind of... A, will, there be, will there be workhouses, do you think? Oh, God. 
I, I can't imagine there won't be workhouses. Um, I don't, if Dickensian is, um, will be popular literature at the time, it will be like reading Stephen King or something. So it'll be really interesting, just like the Jack the Ripper thing to see how that, if it comes up, how it comes up. Right. I, I'm, I, I almost expect some kind of slap shit, slapstick, sorry, slapstick jokes in the orphanage about how they're, how they, how they're not living the Oliver Twist life or something like don't be so dramatic. And it's one of those rare cases where you can make a reference that still sparks to the public consciousness, right, right. but is also actually like fact factually accurate for the time. Like that would be a modern day reference for that. Yeah, so it's like pop culture in Victorian England. <laughs> like it's yeah. it's so on brand for Jaws. I would like I, I would love that. Like let's joke about Jack the Ripper and and Charles Dickens and workhouses. Let's do it, you know? Charles Dickens' plays, were they put on at that time? Well, he was... He, he didn't write, really, plays. He wrote novels. Yeah, I'm not sure why I said... I'm not sure why I said plays. They were... Um, like, yeah, we can edit that out. Um, they were serialized yes. novels. They were, they, were, they were sort of like... Um, I, I mentioned in the uh, interview, they're sort of like kind of the, almost the comic books of their day they were released chapter by chapter and then once the whole story was told were bound together in a single right. book and were then later published and they were and they were like cliffhangers right they were they were meant um like the shows in the 40s and 50s that were you know kind of westerns that always stopped to you know like 10 15 minutes long always stopped with literal cliffhangers right so these were these were written to encapsulate to have a larger story, but a smaller story inside of it. So you had a beginning and an end in each serialization. And I, you know, he wrote so prolifically that I'm sure, you know, people, somebody always had their Charles Dickens manga in hand somewhere. You know what I mean? I was going to say, I wouldn't be surprised if Lavinia in her role as kind of orphanage matriarch did teach the residents there how to read. And I could see them very much kind of, like maybe they won't, they won't particularly dwell on Dickens, but they might have like, a, 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 a literature lesson where they're reading through the latest chapter of whatever the current book is. So like, they won't literally say, you know, this is Charles Dickens, but they'll, we'll hear a little passage and it'll mention kind of Oliver Twist or, you know, um, Bob Cratchit or someone. So we like, again, like with, like with the Dickens, kind of, it'll just, you'll flick a little switch, but it won't literally be mentioned. I mean, I, I, I think that's what we're looking at. And I think, um, I think, the setting is what we also expect since Dickens was considered so accurate in his portrayals. Um, I, I'm, I wonder how Dickensian, the actual setting and art direction and stuff like that is going to be based on those pictures we saw close. I'm hoping with filming starting again soon, we may catch a few more sneaky set pics at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Ty, that's on you, man. (laughs) It is. I will sneak off with my camera and try and track some stuff down, but... <laughs> We're going to go into the last topic. I know, Heather, you probably haven't seen the BBC Sherlock, but Tyke, you've seen the Victorian oh, yes. episode. I yes. saw the first season of three episodes, I think, so I've seen it. Um, so, so why I want to bring this episode up quickly is I feel like it... it that episode of the BBC Sherlock that takes place in Victorian London, it feels like a blockbuster of a TV episode. And to me, it's almost like the closest um, 
thing that we'll get to the nevers in the sense of like they had a huge budget the acting is phenomenal the writing for that episode is phenomenal it was emmy winning uh <laughs> <Ty> laughs um so if anyone's like craving like what a taste of the nevers is going to be i highly recommend the bbc's victorian london episode um please stop there because series <laughs> four doesn't exist a few things that were covered in the Victorian episode was, um, I, I don't want to spoil or give too much away, but definitely like women's rights. And, um, that was a huge thing throughout the entire episode. Women getting revenge for how bad men have treated them. Um, so that's obviously going to be a thing that's going to be brought up in the Nevers. But another huge thing about that episode is ghosts and ghost stories and illusions. Oh, nice. Right? Um, which is so cool. So it's literally a ghost story mystery that deals with feminism, but it also has to deal with Moriarty, which the best character of all time. So I'm just going to read a little bit of, um, about ghosts in Victorian England. So the popularity of ghost stories were strangely related to economic changes. So the Industrial Revolution had led people to migrate from rural villages into towns and cities, creating a new middle class. They moved into houses that often had servants. So this new staff found themselves in a completely foreign house, seeing things everywhere, jumping at every creek. So servants were expected to be seen and not heard. Actually, probably not even seen, to be honest. Um, if you go to a stately home like Harewood House, you see the concealed doorways and servants' corridors. You would actually have people popping in and out without you really knowing they were there, which would be quite a freaky experience. You've got these ghostly figures who actually inhabit the house. So that's that's kind of interesting when you think about ghosts and how the servants like are in a completely brand new place. So I'm, I'm really curious if the Nevers is going to have a little bit of a supernatural bent, if ghosts is going to be at all a part of like at least one episode. Um, one last thing about that is lighting was often provided by gas lamps, which have also been implicated in the rise of the ghost story in that time. So carbon monoxide emitted um, could provoke hallucinations. So that's... I know. <laughs> so, so I don't know. So and, and then um, one last thing about the Victorian episode of Sherlock. Another thing that was prominent in it was also like magic and illusions that came to um, a huge rise in that time in the 19th century. So, yeah, I don't know. Ghosts, illusions, a little bit of magic. I think the Nevers could have at least a little bit of a focus on that. Yeah, I don't think we've touched on that, but it was very popular, very popular for mm -hmm. mystical seances, ghost stories, magic, um, especially illusionists. Um, uh, so I think that, it, you know, it, they'll certainly touch on it. It will yeah. certainly be part. It has to be because mm -hmm. it, it, that's going to be their world, I feel like. So, you know, I, I don't know how, like many things, I don't know how it'll integrate in, if it's going to be constant or in and out or one and off. But yeah. It's got to be there. Yeah. They've got to have psychics. And Ella, Ella Bell's character um, is psychic, the prostitute. She's psychic. She can read people's minds. So, yeah, it's there. Yeah. If you want a taste of an HBO level production, uh, a blockbuster type of story with like amazing acting and amazing writing, I would recommend the BBC Sherlock's Victorian London episode. And then yep. the show ends after the great that. Great swan so. song. Let's move on to listener submitted letters. We have a bunch 
a bunch for this show, which is um, which is good news because it means people are listening to Thank us and they're interested that. in what we have to say. Uh, the first one, uh, I'm almost a little hesitant to, to read and talk about, but we're going to go for it. Um, Hello, Nevers. Any comments on the recent stories about Joss? That one of the stunts on Buffy and uh, recently one involving Ray Fisher from Justice League. This is not only bad press, but it's also revealing things most fans didn't know about him personally. I only knew the one thing from Angel in which he killed Cordelia because Charisma was pregnant. Uh, but now it seems more people are starting to talk about how bad his behavior was on set or off. I know, sadly, this happens a lot in the movie business, but Joss is very loved by his fandom and seeing I'm seeing a lot of fans getting disappointed with these recent reports. Uh, much love, Louis Philippe. So where to start? Uh, I think um, with the swirl surrounding Joss and his behavior, particularly what's come up with Justice League, I think the jury's out. Uh, I am a person that believes victims. Um, and if there is a problem, I hope it comes to light. I hope that it is not as bad as it's been sounding because, it, you know, he's he's been pretty well dragged lately. But I also um, don't, don't want victims to be afraid to come forward um, with stories of bad behavior. Um, and Hollywood is notorious for it. Joss is hardly the only one, if it's true. But that has to change. Sets have to be safe for people to work on. Uh, that being said, um, it, I'm kind of art and artist type of person at this point. I went through a lot with the Kai Cole ac accusations and took them very personally. And I've kind of compartmentalized who I think Joss is as a person personally, which is really none of my business um, and the art that he creates. Um, so uh, what do I think about these stories? Um I, I'm in a wait see mode. I, I think it's um, I think it's fair to say um, there's definitely smoke. We'll see if there's fire. You guys got any input? Yeah, beautifully said, Heather. Um, like you said, a wait and see mode. We'll definitely um, be updated on it and see any further developments. Like if more comes out and yeah, if all this evidence is shown then we will address that if and when it happens but as of this particular right. point everything is so up in the air it's not our place to make any kind of definitive statement if it comes to a point where we have to kind of draw a line in the sand we will but for now i think it's best we just let the events play out and see you know who is left standing at the end and i hope everyone can get through this and be happy on the other side but until we reach that point we're not really in a place to say anything about it right and we're we're excited about the nevers mm, as the very. nevers is a property and that's what we want to continue to focus on and i think uh, depending on what the outcomes are from this situation if there are outcomes there's no guarantee we'll address it when it's it's necessary so thanks Thank for uh, the letter the next one this is from Nikki from Austin, Texas. Thank you for a great podcast. I've been listening since the beginning of this year when I found you on Spotify. Oh, I have a question. Do you think Joss is going to have to change his style of writing for the never since it takes place in the Victorian era? Will he be able to write with his Joss Whedon style of quips? This is probably one of my favorite questions that we've gotten. Um, and so for this episode, I rewatched the BBC Sherlock episode, as I just mentioned, and that episode is hilarious. Like when, when Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss actually write well, uh, their dialogue is, <laughs> let 
love you guys. I've met them a few times. Anyway, their dialogue can be amazing. And it reminds me of Joss because they have their own style and they, they balance drama with humor so well. So I definitely think Joss, it, it, it won't even feel like it's in the Victorian era in the best way. Like they'll speak like it is, but his quips are going to feel as if they aren't, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like in The Avengers, when he writes Thor and Loki, it's very Shakespearean, but they're still quips, right? It's still funny. So he's he's just so brilliant at being able to adapt to different characters in different time periods. And my last thought about that is, with the Fanged Four in the Buffyverse, I mean, they still have funny moments, and they still have quips. So I would love to see a whole show like that. Yeah. Those are my thoughts. Oh, just, um, as the, uh, the resident of the country in question i will just chip in that i do think joss's very kind of dry comedic style will fit quite well with the sensibilities of victorian era england i don't think there'll be as many kind of pop culture references but i'm okay with that you can still write kind of snappy dialogue while being era appropriate to and as we mentioned earlier they can still make kind of dickensian quips there's still you know, throw, throw some Shakespearean in there, like you said, from Thor and Loki. It is possible to still write his style. He may be a little more serious because it does feel like the tone of this show is going to be a bit darker than some of his previous works. But I don't think Joss can write an entirely serious product. So there will there will definitely be, still be some odd quips thrown in there. That's uh, that's what I love about him, his, his levity in the face of darkness. So mm. I, I, I do think I do think there'll be quippy stuff but i think it'll be victorian britain britain quippy stuff i think like gina called out some of the period pieces or stylistic changes he's had to make to his language to suit the characters in the setting uh, i think he's about that all day long writing has always been his strongest point mm. like he's a good director he's a great writer okay uh do you think the extreme patriarchal and domestic values of this period will pose a challenge for the storytelling? Will Joss have to take artistic license to make things more convenient for his female characters in their day-to-day movements and interactions? And that question is from Berger, brackets, Will, long-standing friend of the podcast. I, I don't think he's going to particularly need to take any license with that because this very much seems like this show will be about the downtrodden raging against the machine and you can't rage if there's no machine there to rage against so uh, very much it seems to me the core of this show will be fighting against kind of the perceived values of the time i think if anything the more he leans into the patriarchal and domestic values of the period the more impacts the characters will have as they stand against them right so if anything i hope he doesn't adapt anything because yeah, that will that, make it yeah, more that's, powerful uh, that's my feeling too that that the the oppression is the construct mm. i mean the oppression is the reason that it, what empowers them in a way and but sure it'll be a, a it'll be um, a hindrance it's meant to be that i mean i believe that's you don't write a show in victorian england without the the patriarchy being a problem <laughs> for a bunch of women mm. like hello so so um I, I yes, I'm. There's going to be have to have to be some allowances. They're just, but I don't think it's going to be wholesale throw the mores of the era out the window mm. to make it more convenient. I cannot see that happening. 
All right. We have a um, question from Daniel. How do you record your podcast? Due to COVID, all the podcasts that I listen to are recording remotely, and they now have poor audio quality, have connection problems, uh, and are speaking over each other. What's your secret, Daniel? Um, so the secret is, Daniel, we always recorded remotely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm in Colorado. Uh, Taeg is in the UK. Gina is in LA. And Kelly, who is on hiatus, is in Canada. None of us live near each other. So um, as with um, my other podcast, everything is remote. Uh, so we have pretty decent mics and a pretty decent audio recording system and a very good editor. <laughs> and that's our secret. <laughs> we have a spectacular producer. Uh, he puts up with a lot. So uh, so that's the secret. It's We have um, the quality is good because it, the remote part of it was always the, the obstacle. Mm. Okay. Do we have closing thoughts, guys? We have talked ourselves blue in the face. (laughs) Uh, My closing thoughts really would just be, I think of all the eras Joss could have picked to tell this particular story, I think he's picked the best one. Uh, The Victorian era is kind of, as we mentioned in the interview with Ruth, it's far enough away that it's got that kind of oldie-worldy feel to it and you can it was very England was very much kind of an emerging country at that point but it's near enough that a lot of the issues that faced the characters then are still being faced by people now so it was it's able to be kind of historic and period accurate while also remaining very very relevant and I mean that's that's just gold I can't wait to see what he does with that yeah, uh, like Tag said, I feel like going through all of these different topics in Victorian England just makes me more excited about the show. And even though Victorian England has been done to death, it's never been really done by Joss Whedon. So it's going to be unlike anything we have ever seen. I I am just so excited about the parallels between now and then, like you guys are. I mean, it's there's so there's so much crossover with with. Um, with industrialization and the, and the working poor and the, you know, just so excited for this. And I can't even imagine, like, I wouldn't even need the steampunk. I know this is heresy to tie, but I wouldn't need that. Like, I just want a Joss Whedon, like Firefly was that, um, you know, except for the fact that it was in space, you know, integrated and, and with no monsters or anything like that, because humans are the worst monsters. Right. Um, but but I'm all for it, and and I and I think that there's so much so much um, social commentary here. It's just going to be rife with with the thing the complexity that I love from from his work. Um. So let's plug of the podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, and go there and subscribe. Uh, for more Nevers related content, find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at HBO The Nevers on the great wide internets at hbonevertheNevers.com and questions or comments can go to the Nevers podcast at gmail.com. And speaking of Twitter, Tig, we need to address a controversy sparked by our anniversary episode, buddy. Yeah. So after exactly a, a year of claiming that I don't have social media and giving various reasons to why I don't have it, most of which were actually true. I made a joke last episode during our anniversary podcast about finally having made a Twitter profile. That was a lie, though, and the content of that lie did slightly upset some people. So I'm very sorry for taking the joke a little bit too far. And in penance, this time, I have actually made 
an actual Twitter account for the show. Come on, Tyke. You can't play the same joke twice. It wasn't funny the first time, and it's not funny now. Yeah, Tyke, we just didn't fall off the turnip truck, buddy. Come on. Seriously, I'm, I'm I'm being I'm being genuine now. I've I've made a Twitter account. I don't have all the cool stuff that I was joking about before, but I will be tweeting podcast related things and some other fun stuff. Well, I don't believe you, and I think you're just pushing it at this point. Seriously, you can check. It's Tig at TNP. I'm on Twitter now. I I have tweeted. Believe it or not, once I even used a hashtag. I I think. Whoa, I'm on Twitter, and he's not lying. He's really made a profile. Who would have guessed? Tyg, are you done being a curmudgeon? I am. I have joined the world of what, 2001. <laughs> I am Tyg at TNP. T-A-H-E-G-A-T-T-N-P. You can follow me there. I'll be posting weekly comic reviews, some music stuff, and lots of Nevers related goodness. Please subscribe and enjoy. All right. That is insane. And welcome to the world of Twitter, Tyke. Um, <laughs> so you can follow me on Instagram at Gina Gemini, G-E-M-E-N-I. Also, if you guys want to get into the Victorian England world, um, my sister and I wrote a uh, short story, a Sherlock short story, and it takes place through Moriarty's point of view. And um, feel free to tweet me or post on the Nevers Twitter and I'll find you. And it's basically called Moriarty's Final Problem by Gina and Lisa. So if you Google that, you could find it. Um, we'd also like to thank our esteemed Patreon subscribers, Heather, who's me, <laughs> Precious, Burger, and Florette. Thanks for being our friends. All right. It's been another long one, guys. Um, I'm Heather, the amazing Heather, and you can find me on Twitter at HMB at TMP. And I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. Instagram is Charmuse, I believe. So until the next time, this has been the Nevers Podcast. This episode was written and produced by Matthew Yamanashi and Heather Malone and edited by Matthew Yamanashi at Culture Inject Studios. The intro and outro music was produced by Gilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on The Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy. Warner Media Entertainment or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders. They're coming. Are you ready? Welcome to the Nevers Cast, a podcast dedicated to the discussion and dissection Heather, of what? <laughs> it's the Nevers Podcast. Oh my God. <laughs> Oh my god, I'm so sorry! <laughs> Freudian slip! That was a perfect way to start uh, sorry, this. <laughs> can't let go! Alright, count me in again. Sorry. Sorry. Take two. Four. Three.